come to our passage this morning. We're going to be reading from John chapter 6. If you have your Bibles, you can open that up to John 6. We've got a long passage today. We've got about 40 verses to walk through. We're going to read them in chunks, but we'll stay standing for this first, these first set of verses. So John chapter 6, verses 22 to 34. Let's read that together. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had only been one boat there. Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into boats and went into Capernaum, seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. And they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. This is God's word. You can be seated. And let's go to the Lord to ask him for help today as we come to his word. Father, we are grateful that you give us these stories, like the one last week of hearing Jesus, how he fed thousands of people. Father, you're gracious to then show us what those stories mean. And so, Lord, we ask for your help today. We ask that your spirit would be here with us, that he would help us to understand what you're saying, to enliven our hearts and our minds. Ask, Father, that you'd keep the distractions of the week out of our minds, that we would, as, Pastor, as Aaron prayed earlier, that we would behold the beauty of our Savior today. We pray this in his name. Amen. Well, you may remember from history class, if you uh, ever learned about a guy named Ponce de Leon, uh, Ponce de Leon was a man who was uh, purported, the legend is, that he was seeking to find the fountain of youth. Right, now, uh, actually, it seems that that may not have been true, that that was a legend that was planted later, uh, but it stuck, right? It stuck. Uh, we still remember Ponce de Leon as the guy who heard from the Native Americans where there may be uh, a spring of water, where if you drank it, you would either never go old or it would actually remove age from you. Uh, and this wasn't the only time or even the first time in history that this, this concept appeared. In fact, a Greek historian named Herodotus, who lived about 500 years before Jesus, writes um, about a fountain of water that these people called the Macrobians had. It sounds kind of gross, actually. They, they, would, they would bathe in it, and it would make them glisten um, or shiny, he said. So it's essentially like oily water. It smelled like violets. Um, and Herodotus' opinion was that that was what made them live exceptionally long. 
Uh, there's a story of uh, Alexander the Great finding a spring that would give him youth. There's a medieval story about a guy named Sir John Mandeville from 1350 that talks about this fountain of youth being in India. So these stories kind of come from all over the world, different cultures, different time periods. Um, and it's not always even a fountain. Sometimes it's an elixir that someone is trying to discover. Or perhaps it's uh, some special substance that's made from an animal or a plant. Uh, but they all have this same idea. Right? That there's this secret that if we can figure out what the secret is, that perhaps we can live forever. Cheat death. And if that's the case, whether it's a fountain or an elixir or a plant, that thing is worth searching for. Now most of us listening to this kind of listen with a little smirk. Right? Like we don't believe in the fountain of youth. Uh, our magic elixirs today have more to do with science. I read these, uh, there's a series of articles that Time Magazine's put out in the last year um, about uh, how scientists are discovering, I think the, the, the headline was something is to the effect of uh, scientists discover potential breakthrough to reverse process of aging. And it's how they were doing all this research, all this research, and then you get to the end and they say, well, they think the thing is how we process calories. Uh, which is a problem because you need calories to live. You stop eating calories, you stop aging, but you die. So that's not going to work. Uh, but people use anti-aging creams or serums, hyperbaric chambers. Right? People are always looking for ways to stop the process of aging, cheat death. Because when we recognize that life is short, it kind of leaves us with very few options. Right? Either eat, drink, and be merry, or try to find ways to keep on living. Now, Jesus has quite a bit to say about this topic. And in our passage in particular, he has a lot to say about the only way there is to live with him forever. How to get eternal life. And Jesus wants us to understand that eternal life can only be found through believing in him. That we can't have it, but it comes through him alone. So we're going to be looking at that truth today. Through Jesus alone, we can have eternal life. And these will be our three points as we go through our sermon, or through our text, excuse me. First, Jesus keeps us from being distracted by the cares of this world. Second, eternal life is given and guaranteed by God. And finally, Jesus' death is what gives us eternal life. So let me read those again. Jesus keeps us from being distracted by the cares of this world. Eternal life is given and guaranteed by God. And finally, Jesus' death is what gives us eternal life. So let's begin with that first point, that Jesus keeps us from being distracted by the cares of this world. And just to remind you where we are, we are in the book of John, uh, one, or just a few verses before this, uh, Jesus has just fed this massive crowd of people. John records 5,000. As Pastor Eric mentioned last week, it could have been many more than that because it doesn't include women and children. Uh, so these thousands and thousands of people just got fed from these five little barley cakes and dried out fish, two dried fish. And after this, Jesus' disciples, uh, they leave in a boat, right there, they, they leave. Jesus goes up on the mountain by himself. Uh, the disciples get stuck in a storm and Jesus walks out on the water to rescue them, brings them safely to the other side. And so we get to our passage today. Uh, it's, it's the next day, so all the crowds wake up. And you can see from John's writing that they're a little confused. They saw that the disciples got in the only boat and they left, didn't have Jesus with them. But Jesus is gone. And so they want to see Jesus. This guy just fed them 
all of them from these little cakes. And so they want, they want that again. So they, they, they get in these other boats that come, and they go in search of Jesus. They find him, and, and reasonably, it seems, they ask him, when did you come here, Jesus? Verse 25, when did you come here? And Jesus doesn't answer. You may have noticed this as we read. He doesn't actually answer their question. Instead, he explains or goes kind of right at their motivation for why they're looking for him. You're seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. In other words, you're here because you want more bread. Now, theologian D.A. Carson points out that around this time period, for the average person, food could take up to 85% of your income. 85%. Um, it's a lot. And inflation's been rough on our grocery budget. My guess is yours too, but it's not 85% of our income. So you can see why these folks might be interested uh, in seeing if that meal is going to keep coming or if that was a one-time deal. If Jesus kept on feeding them, it was going to mean much greater economic security for them. It would mean that they, could, they wouldn't probably have to worry in the same way about feeding their families. They might not be as dependent on good rain or good fishing in order to, to stay full, to stay fed. And Jesus is going to speak directly to that issue. Verse 27, he says this, Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. In other words, what Jesus is saying is you are worried about the wrong thing. He's trying to open their eyes to their much greater need. God promises he's going to provide for what we need physically. And in doing so, his purpose is not to make us love the provision more, but to love the provider more. Now these people keep on talking. Jesus said to work for the food that endures for eternal life, so they want to know. How do we do the works of God? <clears throat> Greek scholar Dr. Rob Plummer says they're essentially asking here, what do we have to do to please God? Which is a question that kind of goes right at the heart of, of pretty much every theistic uh, religion that's ever existed, right? nearly. What do we have to do to please God? Jesus' answer is very simple. Verse 29, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. The work that pleases God isn't really work at all. It's to believe what Jesus says, that he is the son of God, that he was sent by God the Father, he is the only one who can give us eternal life. To believe that. That is the work that pleases God. And their response is so painful. It's so painful. They have just been fed by Jesus. And they ask for a sign. And they give a suggestion to Jesus about what kind of sign they want. Remember Jesus? How Moses gave our fathers manna in the wilderness? He gave it to them every day for 40 years. What they're thinking about is how God provided manna every day for these Israelites while they were wandering in the wilderness after God rescued them from their slavery in Egypt. And God would give them just enough, just enough food each day before the Sabbath two days, but just enough food for the day. And he would keep on giving it to them day after day. By referencing the story, they're essentially asking Jesus, how about some more bread? And not just one time. We want bread every day, just like our fathers. And if you can do that, then perhaps we'll believe you. Which is really sad. They really missed it. Missed what Jesus was trying to show them. Which is interesting. Honestly, sometimes miracles 
can cause people to still focus on themselves more than on Jesus because they're more interested in what they can get from Jesus, not Jesus himself. In this case, their material economic concern was, was so large in their hearts that it was blocking their view of Jesus. They couldn't see past those earthly worries. They were more interested in the provision from Jesus than the provider himself. Which, if we're honest, we, we, we understand what that's like sometimes, I think. Perhaps often. It's easy for us to worry. It's easy to let economic concerns dominate our minds. Are we going to pay for that? Are we saving enough? Are we saving at all? I'm sure you have these as well. And it's worth asking, what are they for you? What are the things that can cloud your mind in such a way that, that when you look at Jesus, it, it, it doesn't spark the same interest or, or desire or understanding of who he is? What are the physical and economic concerns that distract you from the matters of eternity? Because if we aren't careful, we need to identify them. Because if we aren't careful, those cares and concerns can occupy so much of our minds that we can't see around them and to see Jesus himself. Each of us is alive here right now because God has provided for our needs. He's provided for your needs. You've received God's provision of food and clothing and much more. And God's provision for us is intended to help us grow in our dependence on God, our worship of God and gratitude for what he's given to us. But the provision can sometimes be distracting. And honestly, wondering if God is going to keep on providing for us, that, that can be very distracting for us. Not, God promises to provide what we need. Not with the, the end is not the provision itself. That's not why God provides for us. The end is so that we could understand him. The end is so that we can know him better. So Jesus responds again here. And again, he's trying to show them where they're going wrong. It wasn't Moses that provided the bread for you. It was God. And now God is giving you better bread than the manna. Much better bread than the manna. The manna was God's provision for sustaining earthly life. But Jesus is better than that manna. Verse 33. The bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And so they say, sir, give us this bread always. Now that request may sound familiar. Uh, It's nearly the exact same request as the woman from Samaria that she made of Jesus after he told her about the living water that would make it so that she was never thirsty again. But unlike the woman from Samaria, these people aren't quite able to see Jesus. At least for many of them. Their earthly concerns were still too great. They wanted a king who would feed them every day to sustain their physical life. But that doesn't stop Jesus from showing them that he's a king that can feed them and give them eternal life. So that's going to take us to our second point. Eternal life is given and guaranteed by God. So let's read the next section of our passage. I'm going to read uh, verses 35 to 51. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. 
for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? And Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. So Jesus responds to this crowd after they've asked him for more bread, making explicit what he's been trying to show them and tell them, I am the bread of life. Now, this is one of many statements in John where Jesus begins it by saying, I am. It's a hint to those who are listening that Jesus is using God's personal name, Yahweh, I am. But he's doing it with all sorts of descriptions about how God relates to us. So as we keep going through John, pay attention when you see that, when you see Jesus start with something that says, I am. He's trying to tell us something important about who Jesus is and how how God relates to us. Now the crowd wants bread. And Jesus explains what he's offering them is much better than the barley cakes. What Jesus is offering to them is himself. He is the bread of life, which means he is the source of eternal life. And not just the source. Everything about this thing that Jesus is calling eternal life is a work of God. Now there's a lot to unpack in these verses. I want to briefly look at just a few things that we can see from these verses that are true about this kind of life, what eternal life is like that Jesus is offering to us here. This is the first. The Father is the one who sends followers to Jesus. So Jesus reiterates this point several times in this passage. You probably noticed it. If you've come to Jesus with genuine faith, you were sent by the Father. Eternal life can't be grasped. It can't be discovered on an expedition. It can't be concocted as an elixir on our own. Eternal life is a gift of faith. It's a result of faith, and faith is a gift from God. This is what we call predestination. It's this idea here that in eternity past, God has chosen those whom he will save. Which means that if you are a follower of Jesus, that means that God has called you to Jesus. And to use the the words of our passage, God has drawn you to him. Something I love about getting to hear people's testimonies is seeing the different ways that God does this. In different ways, God will draw people's hearts towards Jesus to draw their affections to him, whether that's circumstances where they recognize their need for him, people in their lives. It's often different, but it is the same in this sense. God always draws believers' hearts to love and to know Jesus. Now, one thing you might be wondering, as you saw earlier in verse 29, that Jesus' words here about 
how God is the one who draws us to himself. And standing next to uh, what's clearly an invitation to belief. Right? Why the invitation? If salvation is God's work alone, if God is the one who draws people to himself, then why is it that Jesus is inviting people to come to him? Right? Is it their job to come? Or is it God's job to draw them to himself? And the answer is this. We are both respons- we are responsible for how we respond to Jesus' invitation. And yet God is the one who is sovereign over all of salvation, everything that happens there. We are both responsible for our response, and we are dependent on God for faith. Um, I, had, I once read uh, a, a man named D.L. Moody give a great, I think, illustration or a helpful illustration of how these two things stand together. He once explained by, imagine if you are standing outside of a, of a beautiful mansion. I'm going to paraphrase his language here to modernize it slightly, but essentially the same. Um, before you are a follower of Christ, you're looking at the door to the mansion. And above the door it says, whoever would like to enter may come. All right, that's the invitation. That's Jesus' invitation to us. And once you trust Christ, once you walk through that door, once you've accepted his invitation, and you look back at that same door you just walked through, over the door is written, I have chosen you from before the foundation of the earth. God's choice. God's choos- God has chosen you to come through that door. Now, it's not a perfect analogy, <laughs> um, and it's not trying to technically explain, pre- explain all of what's going on with predestination, but it is helpful to help wrap our minds around this idea of human responsibility and God's sovereignty and our salvation. We're invited into salvation by Jesus. We're responsible for how we choose to respond to that invitation. And on the other side, we can see that even before we responded, God was always at work, before we even knew him. He reminds us that he chose to save us from before the foundations of the world. And because of that, because we know he's the one that was at work, that he was the one who sovereignly chose us, we can know that we are secure in him. And that goes part and parcel with this next aspect of the life Jesus gives. God's the one that gives eternal life, and God is the one that guarantees it. Once you have this eternal life, you cannot lose it. Jesus never casts out those who come to him. Never. And he promises that he will raise you up on the last day if you are one of his followers. He says that in this passage over and over and over again. And what he doesn't say is that that promise has contingencies. Once you've come through, once you've responded to that invitation, once you are a follower of Jesus, there are no more contingencies on that promise. He doesn't say, I'm going to raise you up. I'll raise him up if he manages to get his sin under control. I'll raise her up if she starts telling more people about me. It's not what he says. It's a full stop promise. And he reiterates it over and over again for a reason. He wants you to know that if you come to him, if you believe he is the son of God, and you choose to follow Jesus, Jesus wants you to know that he will never cast you out. He will never cast you out. And that he will raise you up on the last day. He will raise you from the dead. He will not ask you at that point if you did enough good. It's not going to change your mind because he's in his mind because he's embarrassed by you. He's not going to change his mind when he decides your faith isn't strong enough. It's quite the opposite. Jesus will hold you fast even when your faith is weak. Especially when your faith is weak. He will not let you go. Our two-year-old gets, um, gets dinner every single night. Or he gets the other meals too. But for the purpose of this, this analogy... <laughs> 
Uh, I think we're down to like four meals total during the day now. But our two-year-old gets dinner every night. It's something he counts on. Um, and you know who's not in charge of the meal planning? Is our two-year-old, right? He's guaranteed that dinner, not because uh, it's dependent on him in any way. He's guaranteed his meals because it's guaranteed by his parents, because he's part of our family. So in a similar way, our eternal life is secure. When you are part of God's family, it is secure because it does not depend on you. It depends on God. If it did depend on us, we'd be in trouble, right? Every, if we depended on the strength of our faith or how good we do, the impressiveness of our works, we would have no security. Every time we'd sinned, we'd be left wondering if we had just doomed ourselves. But instead, Jesus says our salvation is secure because God is the one that gave it to us, and he is the one that guarantees it. So this is the kind of life that Jesus is talking about. It's eternal life that is both given and guaranteed by God. It's not what this crowd was asking for. And some of his audience began grumbling about his answer. And interestingly, it's not because he didn't give them more bread. It's because he claims to be God. Jesus always forces a response from those who are confronted with his teachings. We'll see this in more details next week as well, but that includes those who have been following him. And we see one of the responses here. The Jews, which likely means the Jewish religious leaders, begin to grumble about Jesus, saying that he had come from heaven. They say, we know his mom and dad. What does he mean he came from heaven? And Jesus' response points out the main problem for these grumblers. The issue for them is that they can't see Jesus' divinity. When they look at Jesus, they don't see God. They only see a man. So Jesus explains to these religious leaders once again that he is God, that he has seen God, and that his teachings to these people are God's own teachings because Jesus is God. I think there is a warning here. If you find yourself in that position, if you are a bit annoyed by what Jesus says, annoyed by his claims, that he's the only way to have eternal life, and that's a dangerous place to be. Any religious tradition or any worldview that looks at Jesus and says, not God, that is not the truth. That is not a true worldview or a true religion. It's a false faith if you see Jesus and you don't see God. And because eternal life can only come from God, if you look at Jesus and say, not God, that means you do not have eternal life. Not the way that you want it. So Jesus ends his response to these grumblers with this very provocative statement. The bread that I give for the life of the world is my flesh. No fountain of youth will give you eternal life, but if you eat the bread that Jesus gives, his flesh, then you can have it. And so this is going to bring us to our last point here. That Jesus' death is what gives us eternal life. So let's read the last few verses of our passage. John 6, I'm going to read verse 52 to 59. <clears throat> the Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you will have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, 
So whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. Um, In the second century, there was this early Christian apologist named Athenagoras. I think I'm saying that name right. Athenagoras, Athenagoras. Um, He explains how, despite rumors to the contrary, uh, Christians are not cannibals. And you might see why that argument needed to be made from someone who was coming to uh, Jesus' words without faith and taking them literally. Um, If someone were to read this passage, take it entirely literally, they might draw some conclusion of that kind. And Christians have been celebrating the Lord's Supper since the first century and using Jesus' words to his disciples when he told them, as we often do, take and eat the bread and drink the cup as his body and his blood that he had given for them. And, and frankly, if, if to be honest, Jesus' words here do feel pretty graphic. Especially verses 53 and 54. It's, it's, it's fairly jarring to read them. And it's actually kind of easy to just want to quickly explain the metaphor away and move past what Jesus is trying to, or what Jesus is actually saying here. Um, but I actually think that is intentional on Jesus' part. I think he wants us to be a bit jarred by this. I think he wants us to have to think about the violence of the picture that he's giving here. But it is a metaphor. (laughs) Jesus isn't telling these people they need to eat him to have eternal life. His words are foreshadowing something much, much greater. They're indicating something about the violence of what's to come. And these people didn't know it yet, but the purpose of the word becoming flesh was so that he could sacrifice his flesh and his blood. Jesus brings himself to the world as the bread of life. But bread has to be destroyed to give life to the person that eats it. That's the metaphor Jesus is making. Like bread is destroyed so that the one eating it can get life and energy from it, Jesus gave his body to be destroyed so that we could have eternal life from his sacrifice. Uh, Many years ago, this is over a decade now, I was studying physiology in college. One of the, the fundamental concepts that I sort of remember learning about, I had to refresh, uh, is called cellular respiration. Cellular respiration is how our body takes the food that we eat uh, and essentially converts it into energy that our cells can use. Uh, it's, it's, it's a very incredible process. It's very complicated. Um, it's hard for a 20-year-old to remember. Uh, but the wonder of it is that somehow in God's, God's design, you can take something that's totally foreign from your body, like a turkey sandwich, and through eating it, that turkey sandwich actually becomes life that animates you, right? It becomes the building blocks of your life, what gives you the energy to to talk and to listen, to think. Something foreign to us is made into energy that gives us life. Jesus is doing something very similar for our souls that food does for our bodies. When we come to Jesus and trust in him, our souls receive something foreign to us, we receive Jesus, and he then, by his spirit, animates our souls. He gives us spiritual life where there was no life before. But the cost of that animating life is that the bread had to be destroyed. Jesus had to die to give us that eternal life. But what we know, and the good news for us, is that Jesus' body didn't stay destroyed. That Jesus came back to life. He was resurrected that he's alive right now and he's seated beside 
the Father. And that is a very good thing, because otherwise the promises that he's just made about how he's going to raise his followers up on the last day, those would be pretty empty promises if Jesus was dead. But he's not. He's alive. And so those promises are good. Now one thing you might be wondering is whether or not or how communion fits into this. Uh, Since some of this language is really similar to what we use when we celebrate communion. And essentially this this is what's going on here. Communion and this story are both pointing to the same thing. Right? They're pointing to the same truth, the same moment in time, in history, that Jesus died to give us life, that Jesus rose from the dead, that Jesus will come again. So when we take communion, we're not actually eating Jesus, uh, but what we're doing is we're reminding ourselves about what he did, what is true of us, and where the life that is in us has come from. God give us, gives us communion as this kind of gracious reminder. Um, physical bread and physical drink is a gracious reminder of the spiritual bread that Jesus gave to us for our eternal life. Now you probably notice that the crowd asks this, this important question in verse 52. How is it that this man can give us his flesh to eat? Jesus answers it. The way that we eat Jesus' flesh and drink his blood is by believing in him. So if you believe that Jesus is God, you believe he died for your sins, you believe that God raised him from the dead, that he's alive now, and you've chosen to follow him, you've chosen to obey him, give him your life. If all that's true of you, then you've received this meal. You have eaten Jesus's flesh. You've eaten the better bread that gives you eternal life. Now, if you don't think you have this eternal life, if you aren't following Jesus, Perhaps you're not sure if he's God. This is what he's offering to you. Bread that gives eternal life. If you want to live forever and enjoy it, this is the only way to do that. So you can commit your life to Jesus, and that is how you have this meal. Now, if you've been with us during this series for a while, you've probably noticed that we often are saying something like this. Pastor Eric has often come back to this at the end of his sermons. Because John wrote this book for the express purpose, as he says, to help us see Jesus' signs, and so that in seeing them, we might believe in Jesus, and that by believing in him, that we might have life in his name, eternal life. So this book is written so that you might have eternal life. If you aren't following Jesus, this book is written to you. So So listen carefully to what Jesus has to say. And if you are a follower of Jesus, it's important to know this is how this works. Not to forget how, where your eternal life has come from. And you also will have people in your life who have not eaten this bread. Right? People who are, whose economic concerns, perhaps, like this crowd, are still what dominate their minds. I encourage you, lead them to the bread that's going to satisfy them in the way that nothing else can. Tell them about Jesus. Offer to read the Bible with them. Pray that God will draw them to Jesus, like Jesus says here. And we do serve an amazing Savior. In response to our sin and our rebellion, he brought himself to be the bread that gives us life. His own body and his own blood, so that we can be his own people. Let's pray. Jesus, we're struck this week how easy it is for us to miss what matters. 
It's so easy to be distracted by the cares and concerns of, of this earthly life, to lose sight of the eternal life that you've won for us on the cross. So we ask for your help in keeping our eyes fixed on you, our hearts fixed on eternity. We know there are very real concerns here that are earthly and are difficult, enough to cloud this view of eternal life. So Father, I ask that you'd remind those who are in the midst of storms that you're with them, and that this promise of eternal life from Jesus would be an encouragement. If there are some here who have not believed in you, Father, would you please draw them to yourself, draw them to Jesus today. And for all of us, we ask that you would give us a renewed sense of the magnitude of Jesus' sacrifice for us, that you broke your body and you shed your blood, Jesus, on our behalf, that you rose again, that you're alive now, and that you will raise us to eternal life. We ask all this in the name, your name, Jesus. Amen.